Take a network break. Uh, strap in with an extra helping of virtual donuts because we got a lot of items to cover from Cisco Live and elsewhere across the IT landscape. We're sponsored today by Nokia and its Digital Sandbox, part of Nokia's Fabric Services System software. The Digital Sandbox helps enable a continuous integration, continuous delivery framework for network engineers. Find out more by listening to the Tech Bytes podcast we published on May 31st with Nokia and go to nokia.ly slash data dash center dash fabric. Also join the Packet Pushers and Glueware for a live stream virtual event on June 28th. Glueware and customers are going to discuss how Glueware enables real-world network automation, even in brownfield environments, and Glueware is going to discuss new capabilities and features. You can sign up for this at packetpushers.net slash live. That's packetpushers.net slash live. We'll see you on June 28th. Last but not least, stay tuned after the news. We have a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Fortinet about how the Fortinet firewall appliance is more than just a firewall. You also get networking features built in, including a wireless controller, SD-WAN gateway, and more. All right, Greg, uh, Cisco Live US 2022 took place uh, the, the week that we're recording. This is the Friday. It was just uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday of this week. Uh, mm -hmm. And we've got several big announcements uh, and some additional highlights, including CEO Chuck Robbins' keynotes and new products. Yeah. Let me just say, after watching through the keynotes, um, I actually quite feel that Cisco's got something here. They seem to have turned themselves around a little bit. Now, that's a bit difficult because Cisco is a big, slow-moving, you know, trailing the industry organization. It's not an innovative, fast-moving. No matter what it says, that is not what it is. Right. But I've come away from here saying I can see that there was a transition some years ago, one, two, three, four years ago, and a lot of products that were Cisco's, you know, future when Chambers stood down, they're all dead. So, for example, one of the topics we'll talk about today is it looks like ACI is reaching the end of the line and the Cisco Nexus Cloud will replace it, right? We'll talk more about that when we get to that section. Yep. That is a big deal because that ACI was meant to be the multi-cloud, hybrid cloud, everything for data centers, and it's not. It's being replaced by Cisco Nexus Cloud. And so there's lots of these announced things like that. So I'm actually reasonably inspired that Cisco is actually moving and making changes, albeit slowly. So, uh, you know, we talk about Cisco sometimes being a fast follower. I would say it's become clear that Cisco is a slow follower and maybe all the better for it because that's what its customers want, perhaps. Yeah, my takeaways from the keynotes were Cisco is very much emphasizing simplification. So simplification of consumption, simplification of licensing, simplification of onboarding, simplification of operations, uh, cloud-based management, their positioning as part of it as also the sort of Meraki-ization of Cisco and how its products are managed and delivered. Meraki really seems to be sort of uh, ascending within Cisco as an operational model. We're certainly ascending as a brand. So we saw Meraki sitting over all the campus and WAN stuff uh, here. Now, is that a branding exercise or is that that business unit taking over the old business units? It's not entirely clear how much, we you know, are they using Meraki's platform, successful platform for SME to wind it up to the enterprise or are they, you know, it's not exactly clear what the internal mechanics of that would be given what we know. And I think the simplification thing is a direct reaction to customers saying, we're not buying from you because it's too hard. Right. This, <laughs> right? <laughs> because, I mean, this is not, this simplification message is something that should have happened five years ago when people were saying, we're going to the cloud because it's simple. Right. Five years later, we now have not just Cisco, but HPE and GreenLake. We see, you know, Dell simplifying its product lines, getting, you know, more wood, less, you know, more wood, less arrows sort of thing. Right. And uh, we're seeing Broadcom take over VMware with the same sort of thread. 
they're going to sl- slim it down, focus on the successful parts. So it, I am heartened by the fact that it, you know Cisco got there late. Um, perhaps simplification of consumption, onboarding, and, and equipment. You know they have rationalised. You know all of the switches down to a very narrow product range now, and that's taken. Probably they could have done it faster, but I don't know. Maybe customers don't want to move, want to change. Is it Cisco at fault here? Or is it customers? Is there I, feedback? I don't know. Yeah, I think I what I really felt that the main vibe I got from the keynotes is that Cisco is kind of a chastened company. It used to be the one who was calling the shots and was essentially saying, you know, mm. dictating to customers what they were going to do, and that's not the case anymore. Customers are restive. They're angry about licensing complexity. They're angry about cost. They're mm. angry about product delays, and Cisco realizes that the tables have kind of turned and if they want to keep customers and get new ones, yeah. they have to be a, a company that is much easier to work with. And that was, I guess, the, yeah. my key takeaway. And the financial markets are turning against them as well. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, Which probably also counts for quite a bit. <laughs> I think counts for more than you know, because yeah. a lot of those, I mean, when you're looking at somebody on stage who's a multimillionaire, like Cisco executives are usually multimillionaires. Like if you've been a Cisco VP for five to 10 years, you're sitting on three to 10 million of share options and value, right? And so them exhorting you to do something, they've got a lot of motivation to convince you of their, their view on life. The share price um, does focus the mind. It does. And uh, one of the things that I'm increasingly seeing, not always, is that people are saying that Cisco is not delivering. It's got no growth. Yes, it delivers a dividend and yes, it's a stable player, but it's not, not delivering on its commitments. It's not doing the things that it says it does. Now that's just a small percentage of the articles, say one third of the articles are sort of broadly critical of Cisco, while the other 60 or 70% are sort of saying Cisco's steady as she goes, or, you know, Cisco's doing exactly the right thing. So, but that's not where we were two years ago or a year ago. Cisco was lauded as the backbone of the industry, the the staple of the technology. It's the bellwether. And that's no longer true because Cisco has been much surpassed by uh, other tech stocks, which have moved much more rapidly to money. Look at Fortinet, which we've talked about, how quickly they've grown. They're not as big as Cisco. You know, at 50 billion, they're not near Cisco's 250 billion market, but they've come from 10 billion to 50 billion over the last three years. So that's like, you know, what can you say about that? That's not, whereas Cisco is still 250 billion, hasn't grown revenue, hasn't grown market cap, hasn't made any significant acquisitions, hasn't changed substantially. Even after this keynote, Cisco's still the same old Cisco. Not much has changed. But yeah, I take your point about being chastened. There's definitely a uh, a sense of we've been told and we have to do something about it. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. All right, let's dive into some of the announcements. First, uh, one of the announcements came out, Cisco announced that a Catalyst 9000 switch and AP lines can now be managed via the Meraki dashboard in two modes, a monitoring mode and a management mode. So if you're interested in uh, managing Catalyst uh, via the cloud, you can do that now via the Meraki dashboard. So I think this is super interesting. The Meraki dashboard has obviously proved very successful, but more importantly, it's been very successful with small to medium enterprises who then go on to become... Uh, large enterprises. But even more importantly, the people, the engineers go from small to large as their career develops. And I think those people who started with Meraki and that simplicity and that cloud hosted, when they go up to the big networks, they go like, this is ridiculous. Why? <laughs> right. Does that make sense? <laughs> yes, absolutely. A, I take your there's point. There's a bit yes. of a millennial sort of thing going on there. Uh-huh. And I think that's one thing to think about. Um, I think also Meraki sort of proved itself as a stable, cost-effective you know, the simplified model works, customers buy it. We've seen a lot of people say it's just easier to operate Meraki than it is to operate the Catalyst and DNA Center and all of that, all of that custom in-house developed stuff that Cisco got to run campuses and all that. Customers just don't like it. Uh, yeah. And I mm-hmm. think is the general sense that I get from people. Do you get the same? Yeah. And that's, again, tying back to that 
uh, try to simplify a model. Cisco realizes it has to simplify. Meraki has mm. a reputation for being easy to use, easy to operate, easy to onboard and consume. And so Cisco's trying to adopt that model across its product line, which also leads to our next news story. Cisco announced that soon you will be able to manage Cisco Nexus switches. So these are the data center switches from the cloud. Uh, this isn't inside Meraki. It's inside the Intersight uh, platform, which manages mm. UCS and storage gear. Uh, they have a cloud version of that. So you'll be able to also then do your Cisco Nexus switches and ACI uh, from the cloud. Yeah, so a couple of interesting things here. One is, um, it's it's no secret, I've been critical of ACI for a while. Um, ACI was intended to be everything. It was meant to run the data center and we were told it would eventually extend into the WAN and the campus. And at some point they tried to make ACI for the public cloud. That seems to have faded away. And now we have this Nexus cloud, which is not only going to be able to connect your on-prem uh, data center networks, but also your off-prem data center network. So if you're in Azure, AWS, or Google, this Nexus cloud will manage all of it, and it'll also give you the visibility. So your switches will send up the telemetry to the Nexus cloud, uh -huh. and the cloud networks will also, you know, be configured to send telemetry in, so that Cisco can the product can start to tell you stuff here. So it's not here yet, which I think was a bit sort of disappointing. As always, Cisco <laughs> tends to. Yeah, you know, announce first, deliver later. Yes, <laughs> yeah, that's right. So yeah. don't go and spend your money somewhere else. We've got something coming. We've got a brain, you know, which is always a little bit frustrating in an era where most people ship as they have it ready to go. So, but I think it's interesting that ACI isn't the branding here. This, the ACI is sub subservient to the Nexus Cloud, and the Nexus right. Cloud works just as well for Nexus switches running. You know, whatever. If you've got ACI, it'll snap it in. But Nexus Cloud is going to be the platform for hybrid cloud. That means ACI is not not the core of this strategy anymore. Yeah, you can see hints sort of in the materials that came out with the announcements that they are, I think, building toward a cloud-delivered and maybe get to sort of an intent-based uh, model because the switches are supposed to send up telemetry and then you can use that telemetry to do monitoring, to do analysis, to uh, I assume they'll start slapping AI and ML on top of it. Uh, so you get insights for troubleshooting, for deployment, for um, uh, anomaly detection, and then potentially that can all feed into a more streamlined automation service. Mm, I think so. I, one of the key things I picked up, I don't know if you did, during the discussion around Nexus Cloud, the speaker said um, there was just a key line that just really stood out to me, and they said, we're going to stop shipping our org chart. And <laughs> <laughs> did you hear that one? I did, and I heard other people pick up on that as well. Yes, I think that did resonate. Yeah, which and it's also something that I've flagged here on the podcast several times is that Cisco tends to have its ships in line with its BUs and its licensing strategies in line with its BUs and the profit margins and the executives get paid on, you know, what features they get into licensing and how much money they take out of a license and so uh -huh. forth and so on. And so to hear them say on a public stage, we're going to stop shipping our org chart is a hopeful thing. Maybe, maybe Cisco is going to, you know, finally recognize that customers are actually important, not shareholders. And the executives will stop seeing their own revenues and their own positions here and start realizing that they're falling behind. And as you say, maybe there's a sense of being chastened here and, and saying we have to make significant changes. We can't just keep on going. Right. The old model doesn't seem to be working for them. And I really feel like Cisco is also seeing competitors uh, start to take a march. I'm thinking specifically of Juniper, which has, mm -hmm. I think, done a very good job uh, integrating MIST and uh ML and AI and automation into its portfolio and platform and suddenly, mm. and of course, there's always been Arista, Extreme, uh, Fortinet and others who are uh, chasing Cisco pretty hard, but I think Cisco realizes, yeah, we, we, we need to do better mm. with customers. 
Well, and all of those companies have taken market share progressively year on year. Yep. Uh, you know, Cisco made a, we've said in shows gone by that Cisco decided to go up market, decided to raise its prices and shed customers at the lower end. And the risk that you have when you make that decision is, yes, you'll increase your profitability, ship less products and make more gross margin, but you also start to lose customers who then don't necessarily stay with you. And if you're not careful, the trend is away from your product. You stop being the dominant player, you become a specific niche player, albeit a profitable one. All right, a couple more Cisco announcements to get through before we switch to other topics. First, Thousand Eyes WAN Insights was also announced at Cisco Live. Um, Thousand Eyes was acquired by Cisco a couple of years ago. They do uh, WAN monitoring and analysis. Now they're uh, putting all that into a cloud service where they can add AI and ML on top to get that kind of predictive analytics capability. So take a drink for the AI and ML. <laughs> <laughs> that was the one thing that was lacking. There wasn't a lot of discussion of AI or ML here from Cisco until we got to the Thousand Eyes. Obviously, Thousand Eyes is the is cloud native, always was, um, and in the WAN. Now, I think the interesting part here is that most of the other networking vendors don't have not yet applied AI ML to the WAN. They have to the campus in some cases, like Arista. Wireless, in the case of Juniper Mist, to the campus, certainly. But the AI ML in the WAN is sort of more limited to the sassy SAS, you know, we're going to scan stuff in the cloud using our platform. We've mm -hmm. seen Palo Alto talk about some parts of their platform doing AI ML, but more in the security and sort of overflowing into the SD-WAN stuff. Um, so it makes a weird sort of sense that Cisco's been you know, not really doing AI and ML in the, in the campus. So to do it in the WAN makes sense. Maybe Thousand Eyes was the best place to bring it forward, um, but it is actually available. So there is that. It's not a, it's not a future announcement. Yeah, and it, this ties back to that whole Cisco re realizing that the cloud is sort of a linchpin for them because you need uh, cloud scale amounts of data to get real value and benefit out of machine learning and AI. So by building these, you know, cloud SERP, cloud-based services where they can get data from any huge number of customers and, you know, normalize it and anonymize it and then do the analysis mm. on top of that, you've got a much better, a larger data source to extract potentially better insights yeah. from. So that's part of that. Well, I think there's a few well. things in there. One is AI and ML, you need a lot of data. More data gives you um, greater, better results. Presumably, so when you yes. run your AI, and, yeah, the, as you run the analysis across it, the more data you have, the greater the level of confidence in general. Mm -hmm. um, if you're going to do that, you need to have, the data storage. And at this point in time, the off-prem clouds have, have the data storage right. uh, virtually unlimited, right? So if you're going to build a data center, you have a fixed amount. So if Cisco starts building data centers, now it does have very large data centers with data lakes inside them, but mostly related to Jasper and to some extent AppDynamics. Um, but this, you know, if you're going to do AIML, most people are doing it in off-prem clouds today because they just don't know how much data they need. Right. And then you also need an enormous amount of compute and specifically uh, AI compute, which often use custom hardware. And so you tend to do this in the off-prem cloud for that reason. Uh, you don't know how much you need. You don't know how much analysis you're going to want. You don't know how many times you're going to need to run it to get the models and validate the models. And so at this point in time, a AI in the public cloud makes more sense if you're in a hurry. If you're not in a hurry and you know some bounds around what you want to do, you can certainly do it on-prem. And that's what NVIDIA is betting on. They're selling products based around on-prem AI. So we'll see how that works out. Yeah. All right. Two more announcements. Uh, Cisco announced new products, Callista and Panoptica. These are aimed at container and Kubernetes-based applications. 
Callista is a service mesh manager based on the open source Istio service mesh, provides security, observability, and traffic management in microservices apps. Uh, Panopticon sounds like a bigger product. It's a cloud-based security service for application and API security. These were very interesting. I don't know if you noticed <clears throat> this, but if you actually go to their websites, they're not on the Cisco website. They're standalone I did notice websites. That. Yeah. So panoptica.app and the other one is callisti.app, C-A-L-I-S-T-I. Uh, .app. So there, and then on the top it says the Cisco Service Manager. That's an interesting thing here. There's a, a, an, a Cisco has announced something called the Emerging Technologies um, something inside of Cisco, which is a product, which is an incubator for a range of tools for cloud native. Um, and that, if you go to eti.cisco.com, you'll see it. And Callisti and Panoptica are part of that business unit. Mm -hmm. if you like, Cisco's internal structure. And there's also another one called Telescope, which is a native application, but they didn't talk about that one today. But if you actually go to Panoptica or Callisti, they're not, it just says callisti.app, the Cisco Service Mesh Manager. In the case of Panoptica, it actually says the Secure Application Cloud. So I think this is to sort of say, we've got some open source components to these, so we're going to hold them at arm's length. And I also wonder how much the success of the Meraki and Thousand Eyes holding the old branding at arm's length. And maybe they've decided to repeat that as a business strategy. Does that make sense? It does. It also could be to try to make these as easy to find and consume as possible. If you're trying to hunt around on the Cisco you know, general website yeah. for stuff, you may decide to give up. But if it's a nice mm -hmm. standalone, easy website, yeah, maybe you'll get in there and start using it. Yeah, it seems odd. I do think there's a, an open source component here. So maybe Cisco wants to hold them at arm's length and try and cozy up to the open source community. It hasn't actually been, so in spite of Cisco's significant commitments to open source, it hasn't really turned around its reputation um, amongst open source enthusiasts like F, F, uh, FDD um, and, and some of its contri contributions around the eBPF and so forth have been significant. But um, it's VPP code and FD.io, I think, are the two things that I know most about, and I'm sure there's others. But in this case, the Panoptica is actually contributing Cube Clarity, which is a Kubernetes runtime vulnerability scanner. Mm. It's on GitHub. And also a thing called API Clarity, which is a cloud-native visibility tool for APIs, utilizes a service mesh framework to capture and analyze API traffic and identify potential risk. And that is also on GitHub. So these are Cisco products, projects, open source projects, as best I can tell. Um, it was It's not exactly clear. They don't do a great job of explaining how this works. And I, I have to sort of interpret between the lines. And I could be getting this wrong, in which case I apologize in advance and make your own judgments. Yeah, and if you have insights on any of the things we talked about, you can always hit us up at packetpushers.net slash FU. FU is for follow-up. Uh, we're always happy to get corrections, comments, clarification. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. I just wanted to, before we jump on, I just wanted yeah. to make one comment. Mm -hmm. um, and this is a little bit cynical, but this is if you stand back far enough, one of the things that um, Cisco did do well is um, I was very pleased to see Cisco talking about their social initiatives. Mm -hmm. They've got a number of them, environmental, and Chuck seems to be personally very committed um, at least I didn't put Chuck on stage for the whole time. That was a relief, by the way. He's not a great speaker. Um, <laughs> he really does sound like a self-help business textbook. You know, one of those awful ones that sort of says, be the change you want or something. Anyway, it was good. It was good to see him on stage, but good that he was only on for 20 minutes and then left it to people who are much more interesting. Um, one of the things that struck me here is that when you're looking at um, all of these announcements, effectively what they're doing is putting a software layer over the top of AWS, Azure, and Google. So 
And I think that's an admission that Cisco can't compete. And we've seen the same thing from a number of other vendors. So this is not, but I think this is a confirmation that this business model of saying, we're not going to compete with these companies anymore. We're not going to try and make EAS or PASS or whatever. What we're going to do is lay some sort of layer over the top of it that fills in the gaps that these companies aren't doing. Mm-hmm. And and that keeps them back in control of the customer. You, there's two ways to control the customer. One is to be right at the bottom of the stack and take control of it. So with Apple, with the smartphone, for example, it owns the smartphone and everything on top of it doesn't really matter because Apple controls. But the other way is to put something over the top. So more like the WeChat app out of China, where the app sits on top of every phone, it doesn't really matter what phone you have, right? Uh Either of those business strategies is perfectly viable. But I think in this case, Cisco is moving to the model where we have to put something over the top of AWS, Azure, and Google, because all enterprises will have all of those clouds and they'll have an on-prem cloud for the foreseeable future. So the tactical stra- the strategy here, and, and the tactical, it is tactical at this point in time, I think. It's not uh, a, an all-hands-in because Cisco hasn't dumped everything it was doing before and gone all-in here. It's very much trying to bridge all the worlds and keep all the balls in the air. Um, so wrapping this layer of software over the top of Azure, Google, and, and all that sort of stuff gives you in a position to own the customer so that AWS and Google don't get to drive the industry or drive customer decisions, they just become commoditized components. And that's something that I'll be watching going forward. Does that make sense? Absolutely, yeah. You can, you're not going to outcompete AWS, Azure, and Google in terms of building cloud infrastructure. So yes, I can. I think we're seeing a lot of companies try to go over the top and add value there and at least hold on to part of the customer, even if they're not getting that hardware mm-hmm. sale. Yeah. Yeah, and I think also the executives have probably finally internalized that like they've lost, right. you know, like the world changed underneath them while they were watching. And if you can't beat them, join them. If you can't beat them, you have to change your strategy. So maybe you that's have to get part an overlay. Yeah, <laughs> your your thesis about being chastened that maybe that feeds in um, does seem does feel to me that way. But Could yeah, be. on the on the whole, I'm very pleased. It's good to see Cisco changing because I think it had to. Mm-hmm. But I don't feel that Cisco's leading here. I feel like Cisco's been driven to the change. Um, I, I yes, yeah, this was not like. Uh, uh, a decision, a, a proactive decision, it was forced upon them, but at least they have recognized it, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was only a few years ago when Cisco called SDN still does nothing. <laughs> and now look at where we are, right? So, <laughs> it's like, to my face, <laughs> to my face, yes. <laughs> all right. We have a ton of links that will accompany the show notes to this podcast. If you want to get more details on all the stuff uh, we talked about, we'll move on. Uh, we got an FU from a listener named Dan that Juniper Networks has announced the end of life on several routers in the portfolio. There's a link in the show notes if you want to go check on gear in your networks. Yeah. Well, we've got a link. Um, it's a bunch of, uh, I think the, the, ca- the key here is that this is, um, really current products. So uh, 10,000 series devices, which is the <laughs> data center networking strategy that wasn't the one that lots of people didn't like, but a lot of MX routers uh, and stuff that a lot of people have sort of seen as current technology. Uh-huh. They're not all that old. Um, so I'm not really going to get into what the products are. I think what I wanted to say here is um, – that Juniper does have a history of keeping people moving, so obsoleting technology once it gets to a certain point in the cycle. Now, you can have a debate about whether you want to operate 10 to 20-year-old equipment if you choose, right? But you've also got to pay maintenance on that equipment every year. Uh And for a long time, that was a business model that companies did, that networking vendors did pursue. You could make more money from maintenance than you ever did from sales. So uh, (laughs) Cisco... Uh, tech support or Cisco maintenance, for example, whatever you generally, whatever, if you bought a million dollars worth of a kit, 
you would pay $350 million a year to put it under maintenance. Rule of thumb, but that was about right. So every three years, you could have bought that equipment again. So if you're holding on to that for 10 years, 20 years, Cisco doesn't have to make anything new. It doesn't have to bring up any development. It could just sit there and bring in that money year after year after year without particularly end of life products. And that led to a, 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 an, in, an industry that just didn't change and we stagnated. And I think, I think customers are now generally more willing to rotate those assets out much more as the pace of evolution increases than we have seen before, right? Right. Yes. And, uh, and we're also seeing, you know, advances in software, advances in silicon, that there could be a compelling use case for actually wanting to swap out your hardware more frequently instead of trying to sweat that asset for, you know, a decade or two. Well, it, that's right. So ASICs, the, and I think to a large extent, the large cloud providers here are driving a lot of this because they need to get bigger faster. So they're driving, you know, when we got to 100 gig, we thought we might have a decade before we got to 400 gig. Guess where we are? 400 gig, talking about 800 gig or 1.2 terabit Ethernet, right? Yes, we are talking um, about 800 gig. Yeah, yeah. So if the vendors have to keep producing this new ASICs, there's no point in holding on to the old stuff. The business model shifts away from um, revenue extraction from long-held maintenance contracts at very high profit margins and very low costs, underlying costs. You have to keep innovating new new ASICs, new spins. And we're seeing you know, Broadcom and and Cisco, Silicon One, and all those things innovate, you know, pace their Cisco out at a two to three year cycle. And you, you can't keep holding on to those old assets when you're doing that. So between all of those factors, I actually think you need to start getting used to this. We're going to see much faster um, refresh cycles around the hardware. And especially as we get into the cloud, if your company is moving to the cloud that we've talked about so often, then you don't actually want to be dragging all this old silicon behind you. You don't want to have to maintain a team of people maintaining 20-year-old hardware anymore. Yeah. All right, links in the show notes if you want to get details for yourself. A quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Nokia. Their digital sandbox lets you create a digital twin of your data center network so you can test and validate configurations and changes before pushing them into production. Part of Nokia's Fabric Services System software, the Digital Sandbox, helps enable continuous integration, continuous delivery, or CICD for network engineers. Using the Fabric Services System software and the Digital Sandbox, NetOps engineers can create a continuous loop to programmatically test, validate, deploy, and monitor any changes to the network. That includes config changes, software updates, and more. With Fabric Services System and the Digital Sandbox, the network's constantly monitored through telemetry. The system looks for deviations from intent to ensure the network is always converging toward the desired state. The result is you get a dramatic reduction in unintended consequences from changes, more stable and predictable data center network, and a NetOps framework that helps the network team hook into DevOps practices while keeping pace with application and service deployments. To find out more, you can listen to the Tech Bytes podcast we published on May 31st with Nokia and go to nokia.ly slash data dash center dash fabric. That is nokia.ly slash data dash center dash fabric. Right back to the news. Uh, wireless LAN backlogs are 10 to 15 times higher than normal for several wireless vendors. That's according to the Del Oro Group. The analyst firm says supply chain constraints have plagued YLAN shipments for the first quarter of 2022 and are likely to be worse in Q2. We've talked about this fairly often over the last 18 months. We've talked about Wi-Fi chipsets getting out from six months to 12 months to 18 months. I think in some cases they're out to two years now. And at the same time, we're seeing the Wi-Fi standards go from Wi-Fi 6, Wi-Fi 6E, and now there's a certain silicon vendors pushing Wi-Fi 7 for reasons that aren't immediately obvious. <laughs> it's strange to me that wireless ASICs and components are backlogged so badly, and yet data center silicon not. 
or CPU silicon not? Does that make sense? I mean, I guess the the obviously the the culprit here is probably COVID lockdowns, which disrupt supply mm -hmm. chains, and the, the the component supply chains are so extended that yeah, I guess it depends. Mm -hmm. You know, a, a bump here could have ramifications that aren't hitting other places. I don't really know. Yeah, somebody was telling me the other day that there's some components that come from China, ship them to Ireland, and there's a step in the process where they get covered gold-plated or something, and they ship them to some other country to do the gold-plating because there's a tax credit for gold-plating and the other credit, and then they ship them back to Ireland, and then they get shipped <laughs> off somewhere else. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, I, I think I've lost track of that particular email, but um, it was just fascinating to think, you know, that these that some of these supply chains are just artificially complicated, as right. you said. Right. Um, but it's just, it's baffling to me that only wireless component, there must be something going on in the wireless components or the wireless industry. Is there just not a lot of profit margin in that? Is there something about those chipsets that make them not worth making that they're in short supply? But, you know, maybe the money's in core routing assets. Cisco talks about Silicon One, Genesis, you know, and Arista's not having too much problems with supply chain. Why is it that wireless components are so badly backlogged? It doesn't make sense. It just doesn't. I can't can't gel with this. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, the report also notes that the sales of Wi-Fi 6E are increasing. However, adoption is currently tracking below the rates for the previous two standards. That's Wi-Fi 6 and Wi-Fi 5 Wave 2. So there is an appetite for mm. Wi-Fi 6E, but apparently not as high as the previous two versions. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> That'll be the cheapest stuff, maybe, eh? <laughs> that could be. I also assume, again, supply chain is an issue, and we just went through yeah. big refreshes with Wi-Fi 5 and Wi-Fi 6, so the appetite for 6E may not be that hard, uh, not to mention the fact that we're all not in the office, and so a lot yeah. of factors, I think, to, in play. Yeah, I'll go with that, yep. Uh, a couple more stories before we wrap. Uh, so even as we talked about supply chain constraints affecting availability, chip makers are continuing to invest in new technologies to produce new generations of semiconductors. Case in point, the Taiwanese semiconductor manufacturer TSMC says it's going to get the newest version of lithography equipment from ASML Holdings in 2024. The machine uses extreme ultraviolet light to etch microscopic circuits onto silicon. ASML is a Dutch company, and they're the top provider of this kind of equipment. It's an amazing story, uh, the ASML. They spent $5 billion developing this EUC equipment uh, over a 10-year period or something like that. And they own all the patents, and they're basically the only company in the world that can do these. Uh -huh. And and up until now, it's been fine because they've been able to make enough. And I mean, when they make the 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 lithography machines they then actually have to come out on site and install them and they take six months to a year to tune them up and get them you know down to the sort of accuracy that they need it so it's right. not even just a case of let's just make more machines apparently it's a super ex um expert thing that you need experience for to be able to go and sit somewhere you know like so when they ship me these machines they will spend yeah, and uh, it's also possible that the Ukraine war, because I believe they used to ship them on that big Antonov um, 229 that was that the Ukrainians fly. Do you remember that super large jet? Okay, uh-huh. That may have been repurposed for <laughs> more pressing duties. <laughs> it got repurposed with a, with a several uh, bombs, actually. It got blown up on the, uh, uh, on the tarmac. <laughs> um, so it doesn't exist anymore. So there are lots of odd things going on there, but um, you're like just shipping these things in requires, you know, massive things because uh, they you don't want to bump them when they're in transit or they'll get out of whack and they're that much harder to install. All sorts of odd and extreme things. Well, it's the interesting. Thing here you, is that, 
Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up because the story that Reuters reported is that while TMC, uh, TMC is expecting to get this equipment delivered in 2024, it's not going to actually be able to use it to start making chips in any significant numbers for some time after that, I think probably because of this, uh, all of the requirements to get the equipment yeah. up and running. Yeah, they'll get it in 2024 and it'll go into production in 2025. And I've been tracking some financial information around TSMC and the amount of money they're putting down and planning to spend on new plants and so forth. They ma they're looking at investing $33.8 billion on a two nanometer plant in Taichung, wow. Taiwan. Wow. That's one plant, $34 billion US, just to make one plant. And it's building lots of plants. There's in, in, they're building some in Japan. That was another $20 billion. They're building some in the US, obviously, to align with what the US government is asking of them. Um, and I believe they're also doing something in Europe. And of course, Intel's doing the same thing. Um, but just it's just this fascinating thing going on. Um, so yeah, chips chips are complicated, and I don't unless the slowdown in the economies due to inflation and we're seeing lots of infidence. If it slows down, then we'll see less demand for chips in televisions. We see some information this week: Samsung is slowing down uh, component orders for washing machines, televisions, and consumer goods because of the slowdown. Uh, due to inflation. If that happens, then maybe there's spare capacity out there, Drew. Who knows? I don't Could know. Could be, yeah. And just to round it out, Reuters is reporting that Intel is also expecting uh, new gear from ASML, the same uh, next-gen equipment, um, and Intel saying they'll have chips in production by 2025. Of course they will. Got to one-up. <laughs> Got to one-up the competition. Got to keep going with it. Yeah, that's right. All right, our last story for the day. Uh, COVID infections may be the unintended swag from big tech events. A growing number of attendees of the recent RSA security conference are reporting COVID infections, which they attribute to catching while at the event. And I'm trying not to be smug here because I just got back from Cisco Live and I expect <laughs> COVID infections to be rising from that event as You'll well. Be, uh, shoving Hopefully swabs myself not included, <laughs> but yes, I will be shoving swabs up my nose for the next week, I think. <laughs> so there's a few things here. Um, the RSA conference appears to have been a super spreader event. Probably it would appear that something like 20 to 25% of people who attended uh, came home with COVID. Uh, and we're seeing some signs that it happened at Cisco Live as well. Now, a lot of people didn't have masks. And I had one person pop up in my Twitter feed saying that they actually saw sick people in the rooms with no mask on, and they were obviously cuffering and spluttering, and they were obviously ill, and they were permitted to do so. So um, this person says, almost no masks, even when the person was evidently unwell. Many rooms were full to the brim, all the way to elbow, and to my surprise, several people were terribly sick with a cough and everything, and four, Cisco did offer stacks of self-kits. So people could have self-tested, but they didn't. Right. I did get a free test kit uh, with my uh, badge, which I think was yeah. great. Um, and Cisco did require proof of vaccination, which I did have to show to get my badge. They did not require masks. And uh, I was there. I wore a mask the entire time, except when I was eating. I did not see many other people wearing masks. Uh, mm -hmm. I also did my best to avoid large gatherings. I watched the keynote from my hotel instead of going to the room. I didn't go to any of the you know customer appreciation events or anything like that because I was trying to minimize yeah. my risk, but uh, I'm still yeah. not sure. <laughs> <laughs> so let me let me give you some some tips from what I, I've spent a lot of time reading up on COVID. I haven't made a big deal of it here, but let me just say a couple of things here. COVID vaccination is only partial protection. Yes. High level and, and the thing that beats vaccination is a high level of exposure to the COVID viruses. So even though you may be fully vaccinated, two plus two, you know, two two primaries and then two boosters, if you're surrounded with enough people having COVID and enough droplets 
then you can catch COVID again. Yes. Okay. So, and uh, the second thing is that having a COVID infection does not make you immune. You can get partial immunity to having by building up COVID uh, immunity, but it only lasts for six to 12 weeks at longest, and it doesn't make you immune to variants. So you might actually be in a room of people who didn't have, who have a different variant to the one that you were infected by, and you have no protection. So having COVID does not make you immune. Uh, the second, a third, a third thing I want you to think about is that the COVID R value, that is the infection rate, is very high. Every one person who gets COVID can infect 13 people per hour. Wow. And the incubation period is short. So hours. So if you get infected, the actual period between which you get the, and the infection into your body and then you're then um, infectious to other people isn't days, it's hours. So if you catch it in the evening, then by the morning you can be infecting other people and then you're actually contributing to the COVID viral load in the environment that you're in, okay? Yep. So this is why we say wear masks. But the thing about masks is it's not to reduce the COVID you're sucking in, it's actually to prevent people from spewing out COVID viruses. Right. It's the thing that people don't understand about masks is, now if you've got an N95 mask, which is high rated and it's doing the filtration, then it will filter out the majority of the droplets. It's the little droplets that come when people are talking or sneezing yep. or breathing even. Yep. And if you've got N95 masks, you will stay filtered, but you'll only have partial protection because you're still sucking air in and some can get around the mask. The purpose of masks is that infected people are not transmitting so much virus. And that is why masking at events is so critical. Does that mean? Yes, it's not. It's partly for your own protection, but it's primarily a sort of social good to wear a mask because you're potentially mm. reducing your ability to infect other people, which I think a lot of people don't understand that it's, we, we all need to wear masks to make the mask more effective. Well, the point here is, is that it's how much virus is around that you're exposed to. Right. So if you catch a plane <laughs> and there's one person on the plane, somebody will get infected. But mm -hmm. if half the plane has COVID, then the other half will come out with the COVID because there's so much more virus around for everyone to catch. And there's evidence of that. I've read research papers suggesting that, right? Right. So, and the risk here, a lot of people don't, a lot of people think, oh, I'll just get COVID and I'll be sick for a while. Um, the evidence, the medical evidence so far suggests that Every time you have a COVID infection, you're at greater risk the next time. So we talk a lot about long COVID, which is associated with permanent brain damage, permanent lung damage, heart damage, um, circulatory diseases, a range of other things. And there's already millions of people who are being lost to the workforce with long COVID in various parts of the world. And unless you've got medical insurance or you live in a country that can care for you, that is a risk. But basically, every time you get COVID, your body is then weakened so that the next time you get COVID, your risk of having a worse outcome is increased. So you don't want to catch COVID. It won't make you immune. And when you get it, you'll be sicker the next time around. And that's what the evidence shows. Now, that's not true for everybody. I've had COVID and I had very mild symptoms, but I'm still not going to conferences, large conferences particularly. And I think the large conferences is the key here at the risk of because you're surrounded by, if you're in a room with 300 people and you're all elbow to elbow, right. the possibility for high viral load and then a subsequent infection is why small conferences, yes, I think that's that's a different story in a well-ventilated, well-spaced room, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. By all means, but a bigger venue, um, I'm not happy. I, I, I don't think people should consider it. It's still too soon. Yeah, I have to say I regret having attended, frankly. <laughs> Partly because of the risk, partly because the, the benefits of being there in person, I think, are, are are limited compared to if I'm just going for information purposes, 
I could have gotten everything I needed over the internet. Yeah. I do miss meeting people though. Quite. Well, that's very true. And that's the reason I went and I did enjoy meeting people. But if I'm bringing home COVID, it, <laughs> I love everybody, but it wasn't worth it. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, that, that's the story. That's the, you know, I've spent a lot of time agonizing on whether to continue with events or not. And this is where I sit at the moment. I just think it's just a bit too much. Sorry to bang on about this, but that's my perspective. And, and I hope that sharing with you helps you make your own decisions about how you want to handle it. Something to consider as we spin up the next round of conferences coming through the end of the summer and the start of the fall, uh, to, to put that in the back of your mind and think about whether you should be there. Yep. All right. Well, on that note, uh, that does wrap up the news portion of the show. Uh, we've got a uh, sponsored Fortinet conversation as a Tech bites coming up uh, about how it's Fortinet firewall appliances. More than just a firewall, more networking features built in. You can hear that right now. Today, we welcome Fortinet to TechBytes to discuss the universal nature of the FortiGate hardware and software. Now, in the FortiNet product range, the FortiGate appliance is actually quite the same hardware platform right the way across from small to large, and it runs the same 40OS operating system. That is, whether it's a firewall or a router or an SD-WAN appliance or a campus network controller, it's all the same hardware with the same software on it. And... Aside from performance and capacity considerations, each Fortinet appliance can be a next-generation firewall, a router, an SD-WAN appliance, a wireless controller, and zero-trust networking as well. Now, that's the topic for today. In my mind, is one hardware platform or one hardware family enough? Joining me today is Peter Newton, Senior Director of Products. Let's get straight into the discussion, Peter. Why is the hardware appliance more than just a firewall? It really comes down to our founders philosophy. And when they started this company, they saw the need to do more than just a firewall if we're going to really converge networking and security. And that was really their vision. And so they've been looking to add more functionality to this device that, you know, initially it's a firewall, then it became a next-gen firewall. Then we've added in all kinds of other functionality, SD-WAN, ZTNA, wireless controller, mm. switch controller, all these things that are on the same platform. Uh, so, while a lot of people, when they think Fortinet, they think, oh, yeah, the firewall guys, we're actually far more than a firewall. Right. Now, this includes networking. You speak all of the routing protocols that people think of. You connect you know, out to the networks using Ethernet, just like a router. So you would say the 40-gate appliances and the, and the 40-OS operating system is a networking device, just like any other. Absolutely. I mean, we have companies that are using this device uh, for their network. It's mm -hmm. the, the router, so it has all those routing protocols, but it's also managing their switching infrastructure and their wireless infrastructure. So mm -hmm. it's a full-on networking solution, as well as managing not just the LAN, but the WAN. So managing the SD, uh, the WAN connections through the SD-WAN capabilities, uh, it's full-on networking. But at the same time, it has the full-on security. We're doing the uh, IPS, we're doing threat scanning, we're doing uh, DLP, inline CASB, just released inline sandboxing, we do SSL inspection. So these is, there's a lot of security in these boxes married with a lot of networking. I would always argue that firewalling is a firewall was always defined by myself as a router that doesn't forward packets, right? <laughs> like a router is a firewall that does forward packets and a firewall is a router that sort of has a default doesn't. And so in that sense, I've always seen firewalls as just a part of the network. I think most people, once they get to a certain stage in their career, come to that sort of idea. But you're taking this a step further because what's, what's actually inside the hardware that makes it possible to have the same hardware in, across the platform? Because you have this custom ASIC, right? 
Actually, that's a, a good question. A lot of people raise an eyebrow and say, how do you do all these things in a single appliance? Uh, and it really comes back to the fact that Fortinet is the only one out there that rolls our own ASIC. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we do a custom ASIC. We've been doing this for more than 20 years now. We're on our ninth generation. We have three different chip lines at this point. We have a ninth generation in one of them. And that really gives us the additional horsepower, our ability to offload into silicon, what others are doing in software gives us a lot more of horsepower to play with. So we can marry the the ASIC and our operating system to enable this security and networking all in one platform and to have all this additional functionality turned on and still be delivering top quality, best in class performance. So what you're saying there is that a lot of firewalls are uh, uh, an Intel x86 or a MIPS CPU or, you know, whatever it might be. And you can go and mm-hmm. buy a, you know, an Intel NUC type, you know, some sort of computer that's sub $1,000 and you can slap some code on top of there, run a bit of Linux and you can call it a firewall, but it's not a networking. It's, I mean, it'll do things, but it's not really a networking appliance and its performance is strictly limited by CPU to memory bandwidth and CPU to NIC bandwidth and things like that. Well, you know, it can still do those functionality, but it's not going to do it very well. And that's where people say, well, you can't run all these things at the same time because the hardware just won't support it. With our custom ASIC, we can. Mm. And that's that's the big difference. And, you know, we when we launch a new product, uh, we will go out and survey the market and say, OK, what's what kind of throughput and power do we have compared to the, the competition? We call that our security compute rating. And mm. this, we have this on our website. And we're typically in the 10 times or 15 times what the competition is able to do mm. with the off the shelf uh, silicon. So, you know, people look and say, there's no way that you can have both uh, a firewall and an SD-WAN and a ZTA and a, uh, and a wireless control in the same box running at the same time and doing SSL inspection. And the answer is yes, we can. And, you know, we'll, we're happy to do demos and performance testing with, with our customers to show them that, yes, this box can do it all yeah. because we have that ASIC capability. Yeah, my understanding is that the ASIC does the network intensive stuff. So you might not run the wireless controller or the campus controller in the ASIC, but you would certainly be doing uh, firewall, next generation application detection, DLP, uh, SD-WAN steering, that sort of stuff. That's all done in the ASIC. Well, there's a variety of features that are done in mm. hardware. A lot of the uh, more processor intensive uh, stuff, like the encryption, like the tunnel uh, processing. So in the Wi-Fi, you know, the CapWAP tunnels, mm. we'll be able, we're able to accelerate that element in the hardware uh, in the same way that we can accelerate the SSL decryption, which is also a, a relatively a tunnel, intensive. A tunnel is a tunnel is a tunnel. Cap, WAP, SD-WAN, SSL. Yeah, so running tunnels, that right? encryption yeah. on a standard CPU is going to chew up a lot of, of bandwidth. Mm-hmm. And you see that in competitor products where when you turn on the SSL decryption, suddenly the performance and throughput drops dramatically. Right. We see a minor drop. And so we're actually the only vendor out there that actually publishes our SSL decryption numbers because we are able to maintain such high performance, even with that security turned on. So we analyze it and look at what are the computational intensive things that we can do in hardware. And we do that and offload that into hardware. When you say you're better, how much better? Well, what we'll do is we'll take a look at a given price point for a product in the market. Mm -hmm. uh, And then we will look at what our performance and throughput is versus their performance and throughput. And we're seeing uh, that we are 10 times or 15 times better than the competition for a, a given price point. Right. So now just for the people who are listening, if you want to 
see the research on this. Fortinet does publish a bunch of papers on this, and there's things like the FortiGate 600F, which delivers 18 times the SSL inspections performance versus competitors in a comparable price packet. Now, if you want to see for your own choice, do a search on Fortinet's website or get in contact with your reseller and you'll be able to find that information. It is actually something that Fortinet has done for a very long time, just in case you didn't know. SSL inspection and um, that deep, not only next generation firewalling, yeah, that has always been a part of the product family. Like, I think I've been working on Fortinet on and off for about 20 years. And that has something that's always been done. Is it that the ASIC gave you the edge? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really enabled us to to be the most popular firewall on the planet. Mm-hmm. And right now, three, almost four of every 10 firewalls shipped is a Fortinet. And mm-hmm. we really believe it's because we deliver all of this capability and deliver it at such a you know competitive advantage to the others out there. We, If you look at the next four competitors combined, they don't match what we ship out uh, in terms of those, uh, those appliances. Yeah. So I guess the interesting question to ask is why is Fortinet doing this and not others? If this is such a competitive advantage, why is it that we don't see other companies taking down the same strategy, building an ASIC, doing custom forwarding like this? Well, I got to think it comes down to our founder's philosophy. Uh, when they initially started the company, it's two brothers, uh, the the She brothers. Uh, they said, hey, we need to marry networking and security. And in order to do that, they said, we're going to have to have a custom chip to do that. Mm-hmm. And so they've been investing in this ASIC concepts from day one. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the thing is, ASICs are expensive. It takes a large team of engineers. Mm-hmm. It takes years before you get your ASIC, you know, actually functional. Uh, so it's a definite commit to go this path. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, others said, hey, we can get to market faster if we use off the shelf. Uh, we'll just buy a bigger CPU uh, and we'll run it that way. It's, you know, everything's software, right? Mm-hmm. Well, our founders, they're engineers by training. They said the only way you can do this and do this with all these features uh, is doing your own chip. Right. Now, the other flip side of that philosophy is they are extremely aggressive when it comes to adding more functionality functionality, adding more value to this platform because they want Fortinet to be disruptive. Even though we're now Mm. one of the biggest security companies in the world, they're still looking to be a disruptive force. And that's why we've seen such strong growth in our security Mm. business, how we're able to grow. You know, we're one of the fastest growing security companies, even though we're one of the largest security companies. (laughs) I see. Well, coming back to our topic today, I see your I see you're much more of a networking company, right? SD-WAN is one of your biggest revenue sources. Customers Mm -hmm. are really leaping onto that. And in part because um, 40OS is not licensed. It's just one license and you get all the things we talked about. Yeah, that's exactly where I was going to say that Fortinet, we can sell our appliance purely as an next-gen firewall, just doing the security stuff. Mm. You can also sell it just as an SD-WAN box, just doing the SD-WAN stuff. Mm. We just have the same price, you know, for one price, you get both. Mm. So you get twice the product for one. And then we add on additional free features like a wireless controller, a switch controller, the ZTNA. You know, we're Mm. one of the only, we are actually, I say the only company that's doing ZTNA hosted in a firewall. And we do that because it enables universal ZTNA policies because you can put our firewall on premise. You can put our firewall in the cloud. You can purchase it as a service with our SASE. And now that enables that application access policies mm-hmm. for wherever anyone is. If they're working remotely, they can run through the cloud. Yeah. If they're working on a dense campus, they can have those access policies with the on-premise firewall as they're accessing on-premise uh, applications. You know, we get ZTNA everywhere and there's no extra cost for it. It's just mm. part of what's bundled into the service. And that's really the founder's philosophy of adding more functionality, adding more 
value. Yeah, the thing that I really like is that you've got the same 40 OS on every one of these hardware platforms. So regardless of whether I'm working on the branch or whether I'm working at the core of my data center or on a virtual instance on a cloud, it's all 40 OS. Same CLI, same same web interface, same GUI, same operational controls. We'll talk more about 40 Cloud and 40 Manager in a bit. But that to me is really appealing. I don't have to deal with one division of 40 Net for my campus, which is the switch controllers, the stacking capability in branch networks. I don't need to deal with another division that's got a different operating system on their wireless. It's all 40 OS. Yeah, it's not only all 40 OS down from that, you know, branch device all the way into your your core uh, router that can do, you know, up to a terabyte throughput. But also, because we have the same box that's doing these other functions, as you move from doing your firewalling to doing your SD-WAN to doing your, hmm. your WAN management, and then being able to understand what's happening there, seeing the reporting, being able to correlate events between your switching or wireless and your, and your network, it's a single interface. And so hmm. you have actually consolidated reporting. It's easier, easier to pass audits. So there's all kinds of benefits Not from it. having this networking and security converge. And yeah. from a management standpoint, you can manage it from the cloud with our uh, Forti Cloud management, or you can manage it with our on-premise manager with Forti Manager. So we have all kinds of visibility and management tools. And because we're converging so many functionalities to a single platform, it actually speeds up any analysis and understanding of what's going on, as well as making it easier to pass audits. The last thing I wanted to talk about was zero touch network access, hot topic for the moment. Now you've got zero touch or ZTNA. How does, what's unique about the Fortinet capability? So our ZTNA, it is a, what we call universal ZTNA. Uh, as mentioned, it's another free feature that's available. Uh, if you have our, our firewall, it does require that you have our endpoint because it is an agent based uh, ZTNA uh, solution. But if you have those two elements and you know, our agent, it's not just you buy a ZTNA agent. Hmm. This is our VPN solution. It's our security fabric agent. So it's providing telemetry and device information. It's you know doing inventory on what are the applications on the device. It can control you know, USB as you plug into that uh, laptop. Uh, so it does, it has a whole functionality. It's, it's a product that's been on the market. It's been our VPN solution for years. And now we've just added on that ZTNA functionality. So we have customers that, you know, have been using, especially with the, the pandemic, they've had the FortiGates uh, and are using FortiClient for the VPN solution. Mm -hmm. They're now saying, well, hey, I can shift from VPN to ZTNA without paying anything. It's, and it's a simple migration. I can start shifting applications as to right. which ones are controlled with ZTNA Versus which ones I'm going to have. And it doesn't matter whether they're on campus or whether they're at home or whether they're behind a 40 gate firewall with ZTNA enabled. Exactly. Yeah, because that ZTNA is everywhere on, on every single 40 gate that might be in the ecosystem, including in public clouds, private clouds, or even a SASE service, they can have the same application access policy no matter where they're working. Peter, I want to come back to this topic of SD-WAN because sometimes the zero trust network thing and the SD-WAN thing are not the same and they also not necessarily interoperable. Does that, is that how 40Net works? Actually, I think in all instances, the ZTNA and the SD-WAN are separate except for Fortinet. I think we're the only ones that are providing that in a single appliance. And it makes a whole lot of sense if you think about it, because ZTNA is all about controlling access to applications, you know, mm -hmm. from the individual user standpoint. And then SD-WAN is all about maintaining those WAN links and having that application visibility to not mm. only uh, lower those WAN link costs, but also to improve the user experience when it comes to accessing those applications with forward error correction. This is all in one box, right? 
It's the same yeah. 40 gate hardware that you do for 40, you know, for the firewalling can now be SD-WAN integrated with Zero Trust. And we haven't talked a lot about the wireless controller and the switch controller. We talked about that in a previous show. And that's where the 40 gate appliance can be the wireless controller for a branch network. And it can also act as a switch stacking agent via a thing called SwitchLink, right? So your branch mm-hmm. network suddenly becomes some 40 gate switches, which you put out there, plug them in, and then they become stacked. And then the whole thing become, and your Wi-Fi for the branch, and everything becomes administered from a single box. It's not, you know, 10 boxes at the branch all individually managed. It's a single piece of management. And that's a 40 and OS. You, and you have SD-WAN to that branch as well. Right. And that's that's the point of what we're trying to get through here is that it's actually networking. The security is there. We've talked about, you know, a lot of people will buy it for the security features. But the networking is the SD-WAN, the campus switching, the campus Wi-Fi, the branch Wi-Fi, the, as well as IDS, IPS, DLP, CASB, blah, 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 zero trust, zero touch network access, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, actually, I would modify that slightly to say mm. it's the convergence of networking and security because both are in the box and both are there. And that's really, I think, one of the fundamental concepts behind Fortinet's founding and where mm-hmm. we've been going is the need to converge those two and not keep them separate, but to really bring them together for a better user experience. Well, I've often been heard to say on this show over the years that a firewall is just a router that doesn't work. And I think (laughs) this is probably heading in that direction where in this case, the firewall is now a router. And I would wonder how many of you agree with that. Well, thanks very much to Fortinet for sponsoring today's show. Thanks very much for coming on, Peter. If you want to find out more information, head on over to Fortinet um, and do some searches up on the topics that you want or head on over to packetpushes.net and search for Fortinet. We've got a bunch of shows where we've talked about different features. A lot of the features that we've brushed over today are actually on other shows where you can actually dive in and listen to them. Of course, you can talk to your reseller rep and do have a look at the performance claims here. There is some rather striking information all over Fortinet's website where they actually compare their performance against others. You can take the evidence or not, or do your own testing and prove it one way or the other. As always, thank you very much for listening to this and thanks for Fortinet for being a sponsor. It makes it possible for us to bring these fine and free technical podcasts to you. We have a community blog over on packetpushes.net and there's show notes to go with this if you want to see some links and some more information. Go there. That'll link to the show. Follow us on Twitter as at PacketPushes. Find us on LinkedIn and like us on Facebook and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And as always, remember that too much networking would never be enough.